0: Awesome. Hey, great to see you this morning. Man, I tell you what, I looked around during that song and just watched everybody sing, and I think there is not much more powerful in the world than a congregation singing and believing those words. Tis so sweet, we trust in you, Jesus. There's not much that is gonna make the, the demons tremble and the darkness flee, um, than a people singing those words. And so, uh, thanks so much for, for doing that. So, hey, let's go ahead and dismiss kids to children's church. And so, uh, grade six and down, we've got a special... Uh, Program for you, as Steve mentioned, we're excited to begin uh, the midweek programs. Wednesday night kids things, Tuesday night high school, all kinds of different things. Um, Love to get them plugged in. So. Our kids are so quiet. They had their first week of school this week. They're all just kind of running on empty. So, Well, great to see you. I was uh, away on vacation for um, a little bit, and I missed you, and so it's nice uh, to be back together. Although I was thinking, didn't Augusto do a, a great job last week if you were here last week? Didn't it, Yeah. I think we should appreciate uh, Augusto for jumping in and... Um, So that was awesome. Um, Hey, before we jump into this morning's message, and we're going to get there, um, I do want to let you know that I am so excited to announce kind of a big deal as a church. In the next couple weeks, we are going to begin a whole new church-wide series around our theme for the year, which is made for this. So each year we choose kind of a theme for the year. This year's is made for this. We chose that theme because of kind of what uh, theologians would call missiology, missiology is all about what is my mission in life? What does it mean to live on mission, and so we're going to take uh, a little over six weeks as a whole congregation to ask those questions and to dig into that. In what we're going to call our "Made for This" journey, uh, so that's going to include messages here on Sunday morning uh, that we hope that you are a part of. Uh, we're also going to have some small group material, and we've got community groups kind of digging into that uh, during the week. Uh, we're encouraging everybody to purchase and to read the best-selling book, "What on Earth Am I Here For," Which is about kind of the purposes of the Christian life. And then each week, we're also going to have kind of like some special activities and events, things that will kind of help us put these things um, into practice. And so I'm really excited about it. Um, it is our prayer as a church that you will just jump in with both feet um, into this whole uh, made for this experience. You know, there's nothing more powerful. These times that we live in, I know, can be kind of uh, unsettling in some ways. We, we look at our world and it, it's changing. And one of the things we see is that it feels like the church is being pushed farther and, and farther to the margins. And yet I believe the most powerful thing that we can do in this time, in this place as Christians, is to live our life on mission, to live out who God created us to do. That's what Jesus has left his church to do for the last 2,000 years. It has made changes, and so um, we are really excited to jump into that. Um, We'll be telling you more about it in the coming weeks, but plan on that. We're going to start August 21st, and it's going to be for the whole church. We are pumped up about that. Um, But today, we are going to actually be in a study for the day in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, you're going to want to maybe grab your Bible, open that up, you got some message notes when you uh, came in. And John chapter 2 is a favorite Bible story for a lot of people. A favorite story about Jesus and one that I believe is, is super relevant for us today because we're talking about the story where Jesus famously turns water into wine. So he goes to this wedding, and he turns water into wine. So I admit, I kind of got to thinking about this passage when I heard a a really great message on it myself. Um, But I also kind of was thinking about this passage because uh, last week while I was away on vacation, we had kind of a big event in our family, and my son, Andrew, got engaged to be married. I know. I know. I know. So uh, to the lovely Jessica Van S who also grew up here in this church. I mean, literally they met like in children's church. And so, you know, be careful who you're sending your kids off to children's church with. Um, But anyway, so they've been engaged seven days now. And uh I don't know how this works, but there's a lot of conversation about weddings and stuff around our house. So I thought this would be the perfect um, passage um, for the morning. And so here's what we're going to do. I'll just the outline for our morning. Let me just tell you how it's going to go. Super simple. We're going to spend about 70% of our time right up front um, talking through the details of this historic event where Jesus turns water into wine. And we are going to look at the details from a couple perspectives. We're going to look at them from what we sometimes call the lower story. The lower story is the wonderfully human and kind of earthy side of the details because it teaches us so much about how Jesus interacts with the world. So we're gonna look at the lower story details. We're also gonna see them from kind of an upper story way. And we're gonna see that John is painting a bigger picture and even more than that, uh, God's scripture is telling us that, that he is up to something. And this plays a significant part in it. It's something that God is doing and is still doing today. So we're gonna keep our eye on kind of the, the upper. Story um, details as well. So we'll spend about 70% of our time walking through that. Then I want to just make a couple observations from this um, passage, passage, kind of so what uh, questions, if you will. Then we're going to celebrate communion together. And then I want to wrap up our time by telling you about something that I jotted down in the margin of my Bible next to this passage probably 25 years ago. Um, And I have always thought about it, and it is something that's really helped me through kind of the ups and downs of, of life, especially when it feels, you know, kind of short on hope. And so I want to uh, share that with you uh, when we wrap up. So that's the plan. Everybody good with that? All right, let's jump in. Uh, uh, So uh, John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, this is Jesus turning water to wine. And this is significant in the gospel of John because this is one of seven miracles or seven signs that are written in John's gospel. So you have to remember that John is a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He writes as an older man, kind of later, looking back on things. And so John is very intentional with the details. You could almost say kind of stingy with the details that John includes. He does everything kind of on purpose there. And so Jesus certainly does way more than seven miracles. Uh, John himself says that. But he only includes seven of them, and he calls them signs, because of what they teach us about who Jesus is um, and uh, and what he is all about and what it means um, to follow him. And so this is the first of the seven signs. And so because this is the first miracle, you can almost kind of think of it as Jesus' launch party, right? It's like it's kind of his grand opening for his ministry. So I was thinking about that. It would almost be like if you were a a CEO or an owner of a company that was rolling out a, a new brand, Or maybe you were a politician who was kicking off a a new campaign or a a musician who was, you know, dropping a new album or something like that, your first album. You would want that first impression to really introduce who you are, what your values are, what you're all about. And in a way, that's what Jesus does with this first miracle. It teaches us so much about who he is and what he is going to be all about. So let's jump into it. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 1 begins like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So right away, there's some interesting details about this story. Let's just talk about some of them. The first one is John begins by giving us this detail on purpose that this took place on the third day, on the third day. So that should raise the question for us. On the third day, from what? Well, in the lower story, just kind of the context of the the story that John is telling us, this is on the third day since Jesus had called his first disciples. So he calls them, come and follow me. And then this happens on the third day after that. So this is all brand new to Jesus's disciples. In fact, he probably hasn't even called all 12 of them yet. Um, But the ones that are there are wondering, what have I gotten myself into when they go to this wedding with Jesus. So that's kind of the lower story uh, information about the third day. But, but if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that the third day has some very significant upper story uh, importance as well. Primarily, John is pointing to what is going to happen on the third day after Jesus' death, which he is going to rise from the grave. And so this is pointing forward even to the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll see that kind of worked out in this story. But throughout the Bible, the third day actually is a very significant day. Uh, On the third day of creation, in, in Genesis 1, you have the seven days of creation. On the third day, it's when the plants and the vegetation springs forth. It's the first time life begins to spring up. And then if you carry on in the book of Genesis, on the third day for Abraham, he's on this journey to sacrifice his son and he goes to sacrifice Isaac on the third day of that journey until God intervenes and he provides a substitutionary sacrifice there. Later on Joshua is getting ready to lead the the Israelites into the promised land and he brings them right up to the edge. All they've got to do is get across the Jordan River and God says wait three days and on the third day he steps down into uh, the river the priests do and and the the river's part and the people are able to go in uh, into the promised land. You know, of course, that Jonah is in the belly of a whale for how many days? For three days. On the third day, uh, the, the the great fish vomits uh, uh, Jonah back up. In fact, there's this great scripture in the Book of Hosea that goes like this: It says, "It says, on that third day, uh, on the third day, the Lord will revive us and restore us, that we may live in His." presence. And so we see from an upper story perspective that something significant is happening. From a lower story, it's just the timeline. This is three days into Jesus's ministry, but there's more that is at work taking place there. So it happens on the third day, and next notice, what do they do? They go and attend a wedding. And I don't know about you, but I love that Jesus and his disciples go to this wedding. Because if you think about it, what a a human thing to do. Here in the busyness of kicking off his ministry and calling his first disciples and launching all of these things, he does the very human thing of taking time to celebrate with a bride and a groom. Now, uh, the other thing that that teaches us is that Jesus really values marriage. Jesus places a lot of emphasis on not just the wedding, but on the, 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 the institution of marriage. Now, a wedding in Jewish culture, like many cultures, was a huge deal. It was something that would have gone on for several days full of food and wine and dancing and joy and love and all of these things. And a wedding for the family putting it on was a huge deal. In fact, for most families, it would be the most significant event that they would be a part of in their lifetime. And so much of their reputation in the community actually would have been attached to this wedding. So it was a big thing. And I love, just love that Jesus was invited to this wedding and he says, yes, I'll go. And his presence makes all the difference there. In fact, by the way, if you're planning a wedding or maybe more than just planning a wedding, if you're a part of a marriage, the most significant thing that you can do is invite Jesus's presence into the middle of your relationship, into the middle of that wedding because Jesus's presence makes all the difference and it does it in the wedding, but it does it in our lives as well. So they're invited to this wedding. Jesus says, sure, uh, let's go. His mom is there. Uh, before we move on, I should say a little something about the place that this takes place as well. It happens in the city of Cana. Um, now scholars have, there's a little bit of dispute exactly where Cana was. Uh, there's two modern cities that carry the name um, Cana, but both of them are, are very close in proximity and they are about maybe 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee is actually a friend freshwater lake, and maybe about 10 miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus was from. But the significant thing that you should know about Cana today is that Cana really was kind of in the heart of Galilean wine country. It was a region where there were a lot of grapes still to this day. Um, it's a part of, of uh, Israelis, uh, Israel's kind of wine country. Um, but this Galilean uh, wine country, they actually uh, have found archaeology that dates back to around the time of Christ where there's large, almost like estate-sized homes with beautiful tiled courtyards and and tiled uh, or terraced vineyards all around them and wine presses. So as you think about Cana, think about the Lodi of its day, right? I mean... You guys laugh kind of nervously. The leader of the Chamber of Commerce is here. This is Lodi. This is wine country. This is the fanciest place that you could um, be. And so why is that significant? Because these are people that knew good wine, right? You are not going to trick these guys with, you know, a bottle of two-buck chuck. This is something that they would have known about. Keep that in your mind. And so Jesus uh, attends this wedding in Galilean wine country um, and uh, scandal of all scandals, verse 3 says this, when the wine at this wedding was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, as I mentioned, hosting a wedding was a a big deal, a huge social event uh, for this family. And to run out of wine was not like a little small faux pas. This was like a, a legitimate social disaster that was taking place for this family. Now, if you've been around weddings at all, you know that weddings. Every wedding has some weird thing that happens to it. In fact, I'll just warn you: I'm like kind of the bad pastor. I actually like when funny stuff happens at your weddings. Um, so I, I don't want to say that to the bride, but I just think it's great. You know, when there's something that happens. So I've done a lot of weddings. I've been a part of. You know, groomsmen passing out and bridesmaids, maids getting sick. I've seen a lot of very unruly. Um, uh, what are those called? Ring bears and and, and flower girls. Um, I did a wedding uh, several years ago where they were releasing butterflies. I may have told you about this before. And they went to release the butterflies and they didn't fly. None of them flew. (laughs) So they like literally were in the bride's hair and stuff. Um, I loved it. I was like taking pictures of the whole thing. So... (laughs) At my own wedding, um, we went to light the unity candle, and uh, Janny and I went to light the unity candle, and there was a song going on while we were supposed to do this. The song was probably three minutes long, and we were up there, and we were trying everything, and we could not get that candle to light. And so now that, like, the song's coming to the end, and we're doing everything we can, the pastor actually comes up with a pocket knife, starts digging out in this thing. Um, Still, we never got that thing to light. And yet here we are 30 years later and uh, seems like things are going well. I don't know about that. <laughs> Thank you. That's an applause for Jannie for sure. Um, anyways, the point is stuff happens at weddings. That's part of the deal. But to run out of wine in the middle of this, this was a big, uh, big thing. And so Mary, who is there, and remember Mary knows Jesus better than anybody else at this point. And so she comes to him and she says, "Uh, Jesus, they're out of wine. And John 2, 4 says this. Jesus replied, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come seems a little harsh that Jesus would say that to his mom like that. But um, before you are too critical of Jesus and say, don't talk to your mother um, that way, when he uses that phrase woman or just that word woman, it's it's kind of a formal way to address his mother, but it's not disrespectful at all. It's almost like saying um, ma'am or something like that, kind of a formal um, address. But the point of this conversation is that Mary has known that something was coming for a long time. Right? Mary remembers so clearly that years ago, the angel appeared to her and said, you who are a virgin, by the way, are going to give birth to a son who's going to be the savior of the world. And so Mary has carried that in her heart all these years. Who knows the things that she'd already seen Jesus do? Uh, But Mary knew that this time was coming. And so she goes and she says, Jesus, uh, they're out of wine. Jesus answers her and says, hey, my, my time hasn't come. But this is kind of a weird one. Wise and godly Mary almost kind of ignores what Jesus says and just bypasses Jesus and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Which, by the way, if you're in a situation in life and you're not sure what to do or which direction to take, listen to to Jesus' mom do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus tells, or Mary tells him, do whatever uh, you tell, they tell you to do. And it's just kind of this very human kind of lower story conversation, kind of almost awkward between a mother and a son. But in the upper story of John's gospel, what we see is that Jesus is beginning to step into his appointed role. Mary sees and knows this is coming. She knows uh, something's gonna happen. And Jesus now begins to step into this role that he came to do. And so Mary says, just do whatever they do, and then, or tell whatever he tells you um, to do. We're up to verse 6 now. Verse 6 says this, "'Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing.'" each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So a ton of of really significant details in there. First of all, he looks and he sees these six uh, stone water jars, kind of like the ones that I have seen with my own eyes uh, at the Jerusalem Museum. This is kind of what they would have looked like. And they held 20 to 30 gallons. Um, So between the six of them, that was 120 to 180 gallons. If you take 180 gallons, that's about 900 bottles of wine, which is always a little bit mysterious to us because here's what we need to say about that. Pastors have, have a lot of times kind of avoided this story because it, it is kind of awkward to talk about, talk about wine in that way. Um, and I think a lot of times past people think, oh, pastors are taking a legalistic approach to it. But the reality is, is that pastors have seen the heartbreak that comes from people abusing alcohol. And so this is not Jesus telling people to abuse alcohol. The exact opposite is true. What Jesus is saying is that my grace is extravagant and the gifts that I give uh, are extravagant. In fact, if you are struggling with alcohol, it's a common struggle and and, and keeps us really from experiencing the the best that God has for us. And we would love to help you get get free from that. But anyways, Jesus offers this extravagant amount uh, of wine. And notice that it's in these stone water jars. And it's kind of curious, why would John include that detail, that they were stone water jars? They also used clay water jars. Clay water jars were more common, cheaper, um, less formal, because the clay would sometimes rub off into the whatever the liquid was. But the stone water jars were not only more valuable, but they they were incorruptible. They were they were pure. And that's because these water jars were used specifically for something very important. They were used for religious cleaning, for ceremonial cleaning. You see, the Jews at that time, to experience God's blessing, to be made righteous, there were all sorts of things that they had to follow, including a ton of ritual washing ceremonies. And this water was used to make them pure, to make them clean, to get them ready to be in the presence of God. So Jesus sees these six stone water jars, and in verse 7 it says this, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so he filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So kind of interesting here, Jesus points out or the, John points out that the waters were, were filled to the, the brim. This is not some sleight of hand where Jesus is going to mix a little something in or add a little something in. This is not some run-of-the-mill party trick. This is is Jesus not pulling, trying to pull a fast one uh, by creating something like that. And it's a good thing because the first person who tastes it is the master of the ceremony In Galilean wine country, he was not going to be tricked by anything. But in fact, he tasted it. He says, this is amazing. So Jesus took something that was very common and ordinary, that water, and he turned it into something else of extraordinary value. And this sign that John says is the first sign that Jesus does demonstrates Jesus' power as creator. Jesus says, take something and transforms it. He creates something new. And this is a big deal. Because if you, if you are following John's argument from the very beginning, all the way in John chapter 1, so just the chapter before this, he begins his whole argument by, by calling Jesus the Logos, the Word. And he says about Jesus that he was there in the beginning. Remember that? In the beginning was the Word. And in the same way that the third day was kind of significant and kind of loaded phrase, the phrase in the beginning was even more than that because in the beginning is God language. In the beginning is how the whole Bible starts. Before there was anything else, there was God, the creator of the universe, and Jesus was him, and Jesus was present and active in creation. And so you read that in John chapter 1, and you think, wow, how in the world could he be that? And then his first sign comes, and he creates. He takes something that's, that, that's useless, and he makes something beautiful. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what Jesus still does in our world um, today. So Jesus st- creates this beautiful thing. And he doesn't create just any wine. This is how the, the story kind of wraps up. Verse 9 says this. "Then the master of the banquet tasted the water that he had, ter- had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, will you say this phrase with me? You have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples began to believe in him. So, uh, it had been now three days that Jesus' disciples had been following him, but now suddenly they start to see his glory revealed. And it says that from that point on, they began to believe in him. And whenever John asks a question like that, he's kind of asking his readers as well, do you believe in him? Do you believe? Do you see what he's done? And can you believe in him as well? Well, as I said, if you view this as kind of his launch party, his kind of his, his, his uh, grand opening of his, his ministry and his mission, I think there's a few things that we learn about kind of how Jesus is and what he's all about um, that I think are pretty significant from this story. And so I want to just share a couple of those with you. And um, these are kind of the so what's, if you will, of this story. And the number one is this, is that do you know that Jesus is here to bring you joy? Jesus is here to bring you joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus intends to give you joy? And maybe more than just do you believe it, the bigger question is, are you experiencing it? Are you experiencing joy in your life? Because it seems like for the last several years, this whole world has been running short on joy, right? It's almost like we've got a joy supply chain problem. We're all missing out on it. A pastor I heard, Rene Scheffler, said it like this. He said, the whole world seems like it's kind of a dying party these days. But friends, that is not what the Christian life is meant to be. Life in Christ is a life of joy You know, I have to admit, I am guilty of missing this um, too often because, and and the good side is we treat following Christ as very serious, and it is, right? We want to be serious, devoted, uh, you know, all that, sold out in our faith. But sometimes we we try to be so serious about it that we replace joy with almost a sense of obligation and burden. We replace Jesus' grace with a sense of, of performance, and we struggle and we strive on our own to do all these things when Jesus says, I didn't come so you could struggle and strive for life. I came to give it to you. I came to give life, abundant life, full of joy. Uh, But for some reason we miss this. In fact, I remember a few years ago uh, now when I, it was right after I took the role of the senior pastor here. I'd been a part of the church on staff for, for years, but I took the role of a senior pastor and almost immediately just started to feel this huge burden. It wasn't anybody something that anybody did to me, it was something I took on myself. And I felt like, ah, oh, suddenly it all depends on me, and everything was so heavy, and everything was such a burden. And, and there was uh, one of the elders of our church, after kind of watching me stomp around with a scowl on my face for a couple months, came to me, and I'm so grateful that he did, even though it was a little insulting in the moment. Um, he came to me, and he said, hey, Glenn, what happened to your joy? And I remember thinking, ah, oh, I'm taking all these burdens, and I'm not doing it right. Jesus didn't come so I could carry it all. Jesus came to give life and to experience joy. In fact, if you think about it, the kingdom of God is a very serious matter. But how is the kingdom of God most often described in the Bible? It's described as it's a banquet it's a party. Most often, it's a wedding banquet. In fact, let me just read to you um, Isaiah 25. Isaiah writes a little bit about the kingdom of God. I don't have it on the screen here, but just listen to these words. Isaiah 25 verse 6 says this, "'On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine.'" And then he goes on and he says, it's going to be the best meats. And it's as if he's almost just like forgot what he just said. He said, it also the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. And the sheet that covers the people will be taken off. And he will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear from all of their faces. And he will remove their disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. And that's a description really of an eternal promise of, of joy in heaven where every tear is wiped away. And it's so wonderful to think about that's the way that God, that's the thing that God has for us. I was with a family just yesterday for a, a graveside service for a, an older lady in our church, been a part of the church for 50 plus years, and um, we gathered around the, the graveside and and. Um, And of course you're sad about that thing. But as they remembered Janine's life, they were full of joy because they knew the promise that was ahead for her. They knew that she was walking into that banquet that God had prepared for her, that she had lived her life for, that she was experiencing now the fullness of joy. And we can live with that kind of promise. In fact, I love the the quote from Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa talked about uh, the promise of eternal joy, kind of in light of the sufferings of this world, because we focus on the sufferings of this world a lot. And she experienced them more than any of us ever would. Uh, But this is what Mother Teresa said about those struggles. She said, in eternity... All the suffering of the world will feel like one night in a bad hotel compared to what we are experiencing in him. Isn't that a great thing? So the future is joy, yes, but joy in this lifetime as well. Are you experiencing that joy? Jesus came to give extravagant blessing to you. And so we can walk with joy. But that's not all. The second thing that we see is that Jesus came not only to give us joy, but Jesus came to make you clean. Jesus came to make you and to make me clean. You know, as pastor, I've, I've been with a lot of people in kind of hard times, and you have those conversations, and I can't tell you how many people through the years have had something like this or said something like this to me. They, they say, like, I just, I don't feel clean. I don't feel like I'm not worthy. I can never measure up. I can never be good enough. And sometimes this is because of shameful things that, that, that they've, we've done, or sometimes these are because of shameful things that have been done to us. But if you feel that way, can I tell you something that's not very popular at all? And it may not even sound that nice at first. The reality is, is we're not worthy. None of us is worthy. None of us can clean ourselves up enough and work hard enough to make ourselves clean. We just can't do it. In fact, every religion is kind of in touch with this concept that that we have sin. We all recognize we're kind of falling short of of what we're created to do. And so every religion comes up with some sort of plan to deal with that sin. Usually the plan is something like this, do more good things so that your good things outweigh your bad things or that your good karma somehow now outbalances your your bad karma. For the Jews in Jesus's day, it was all about keeping the regulations and the laws. And if you do all these things, and if you do enough of, of these good things, then finally you'll be righteous You'll be clean and you'll be accepted by God. But here's the problem with that: How much good stuff can we do? Because if you're like me, and I imagine you are, the, the sin keeps coming, right? So how can we continue to to just always make ourselves clean time and time again? How do we get rid of the stain of sin? And yet when Jesus comes and he takes the water from the stone jars, the stone jars for ritual cleaning, and he turns them to wine, it's as if he's saying something in the upper story. He's saying this is a a sign of a whole new way to a relationship with God. Because for the Jews in that time, it was all about one more law to keep, one more washing to be made clean. And it's here as if Jesus is saying to you and to me, you see those water in those jars that you depended on to make yourself spiritually clean. You don't need them anymore because I am here to make your soul clean once and for all. I am Jesus, the creator, and I am here to take your life and make it new. I am here to make you not a little bit better. I am here to make you a new creation in Jesus Christ. And you think, oh, that sounds great. How? How does Jesus do that? Well, actually, the the key to that is in one little detail that we kind of skimmed over quickly um, in the story there. Because remember when Jesus has that encounter with with Mary, what does he say? He says, says, Mary, he says, Mother, my, my, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now Jesus talks about his hour many times throughout the gospel. And whenever Jesus uses this phrase, my hour, he is always talking about his his death. He's always talking about going to the cross. So at some level, when he says my hour has not yet come, he's saying I've still got all these things um, to do. But I want you to fast forward ahead a few years in Jesus' life, and he's with his disciples, and he's at a time when his hour has come. And he says, my hour is now. And he gathers together with them in an uh, an upper room. And he takes a ceremonial meal that they had been practicing for years known as the Passover. It reminds them of God setting them free. And he takes bread and he says, I'm going to teach you something completely new about how you can be in a relationship with God. And he takes bread and he, he breaks it. And he says, this is my body. Something is going to happen in this hour that is huge. This is my body given for you. And so whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And then maybe even more significant than that, he took the cup of wine. And after giving thanks, he said to them, this is my blood poured out for you. And it's the blood of a new covenant It's a blood of a whole new way. All of that ritual cleaning, all of those things, all that striving that you used to do, that's not how you get to God. You do it through placing your trust in me and I will make you clean by my death on the cross. You see, Jesus, the creator, says, I've come to do something completely new. And so here we are 2,000 years later and we gather together as a different looking group of disciples, not in an upper room, but in this room, to celebrate and remember that very same meal that he gave us his body and he gave us his blood so that we could be made clean. And let me just say something that I often say when we take communion. Um, Communion here is is an open communion. You don't need to be a member of First Baptist Church uh, to celebrate communion here. We invite you to be a part of that. But one of the things that you see in the way that communion is described is it is for people that are followers of Christ, believers in in Christ. And and I don't say that to exclude you or push you away or say you shouldn't be involved with it. What I am saying that for is so that to invite you in, and that in this very moment, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you could say, Jesus, come into my life. I, I may not understand it all. I feel like I'm, you know, a disciple on the third day on the job. I'm still just figuring this stuff out. But Jesus, I want to place my trust in you and begin that relationship with you, and you become a part of the the family of God. And I invite you to do that even now, and to take the bread and the cup as a symbol of this relationship um, with him. And so um, we're going to take communion, as we um, often do. Um, We're going to pass around the bread, and if you would hold on to that, um, we'll eat that all together. Um, And then later on, and we put water in these earlier, but Just kidding. We didn't put water in it. It's a little water to wine. I couldn't resist it. It's grape juice. That's what it is. He came to give us joy. Um, After uh, after everybody's received the bread, we'll take that together. But then the cup will come around um, and you'll have a chance to take that on your own. Um, So I want to invite um, Jerry Robinson, um, who's one of our uh, deacons, if he would lead us in a word of prayer uh, for the bread as we pass that around. Thank you, Jerry.
1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. His body was broken for us. Lord, as we eat this bread, help us remember that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And Lord, we need to Each one of us renew our commitment to your word because Jesus is the word. Minister to each one here today as we take this bread. Minister to each one, we pray in Jesus' name.
0: The body of Christ given for you. Let's eat it together in remembrance of him. I uh, invite my brother Le- uh, Leonard to <coughs> excuse me. lead us in a word of prayer for the cup.
2: Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you, Lord, just as you said with your disciples, Lord Jesus, that you're sitting with us or you're with us right now, Father God. And just as they drank the cup and ate the bread, Lord, that you are here, Father, and just your presence, Father God, and we just we want to thank you, Lord, for um, just the blood that was poured out, your obedience to the Father, and that it was just a show, Lord, of, of your love being poured out, Lord. And we just want to thank you, Lord, that we couldn't reach you, but you reached us, and. We just want to give you thanks, Father God, for the forgiveness, and also, Lord, when you said it was finished, it was finished, and it is finished. We thank you for the forgiveness for our sins, Lord, and um, we don't have to waver back and forth on that issue, Lord, and we just thank you that we can walk in that joy, Father, the joy of your presence, Lord, in Jesus' name.
0: Well, hey, I told you that I wanted to just share something that I actually wrote in the margin of my Bible um, probably 25 years ago, and I look at it from time to time when I come across this passage, um, and it's helped me so much. Um, And I wanted to share it with you, and it's really a question, and the question is this. Jesus, have you saved your best in my life until now? Because I want to live with that kind of hope. Jesus saved the best until last, and what if he's doing that in my life? Because it feels like sometimes there's no hope or there's you know, nothing to look forward to. But when you're walking with Christ, the best is always ahead. There's always there. So I wanna just challenge you today. If you're here today and you need a little of that hope, Jesus has the best for you. Following him is the best for you. And what if, just maybe, just maybe, he has saved the very best in your life until now. And so you can walk with that hope this week. Well, thanks so much for being here today. I'm going to um, send us out with a word of prayer. Um, before we do that, a couple things. Um, first of all, the first Sunday of the month, we always collect what we call our deacons fund offering. Um, that's to help with needs in the church family or in the community. So if you'd like to contribute to that, that's kind of a, an extra offering. We'd encourage you to do that. Um, also, uh, we have our prayer boards up. If you wanted to leave a prayer, um, you could do that. Also, some from our prayer team are going to be available. They would love to pray with you um, after this service or any service. And if you're visiting with us today, we've got what we call a little five-minute prayer party, just a chance to say hello. Um, There's some fresh baked cookies in my office just to the left of the the fireplace out there. I'd love to to meet you there. Uh, But for now, let me dismiss us with the word of prayer and ask God's blessing as we go. God, your people have gathered together and we have been reminded once again of your extravagant goodness and your lavish grace in our life. And so we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that we would go and walk out of here, Lord, with this attitude that you have the best even ahead for us and that you, the creator of the whole universe, is creating good things and new things in our life. So, Lord, I thank you for each person here. And now as we go, may we shine your light to the glory of your kingdom. May we live with joy of the risen
1: Savior. And we go in his name, Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you and have a great day.